The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box in your headlines this Tuesday morning. We've just had numbers from Standard Chartered. The company is set to resume its interim dividend and has launched a $250 million share buyback as the UK lender sees first half profit jump nearly 60%. The CFO, Andy Halford, will join us very shortly. Fixed income and currency trading revenues come in under pressure for SOCGEN, but the French bank has reported a 1.4 billion euro net income for the second quarter and has outlined plans for its share buyback. We will have the CEO on the programme within about 30 minutes' time. U.S. stocks come off early gains, closing lower after fear of a Delta variant spike outweighs enthusiasm around the infrastructure program. The Fed's Christopher Waller telling CNBC the economy is ready for a tightening of policy. My view with tapering, we should go early and go fast uh, in order to make sure we're in position to raise rates in 2022 if we have to. Chinese online gaming stocks take a tumble as state media takes aim at the industry, branding it, quote, spiritual opium. Translate bio surges in after-hours trading on a report that Francis Sanofi is offering to buy the U.S. biotech company as it bets on next-gen mRNA technology. Let's take you back to our headline this hour on Standard Chartered. The pre-tax profit has surged 50% in the first half, beating expectations. The lender has also announced a $250 million share buyback program, whilst also resuming dividend payments. Andy Halford is the CFO of Standard Chartered and joins us now. Andy, great to have you back on the program. Just characterise the period for us, if you could. Um, How much momentum is there back in the growth side of the business? So overall, the direction of travel has continued to be in a positive direction, albeit by market, it has been a bit variable, clearly more challenging in India, particularly a few weeks ago, a little bit more challenging in markets like Bangladesh at the moment. But overall, um, we've been moving very much in a positive direction, particularly with some of our Northern Asian markets, Korea, China, et cetera, growing over 20% in the last quarter. The impairment numbers obviously improving. Do you expect that situation to continue to get better ultimately as we come out of this pandemic? Uh, We're reporting this morning on this spike in cases in China and clearly there's a lot of concern around the new Delta variant. How are you factoring in that into uh, credit quality and uh, impairment charges? Uh, simple answer, keeping a very close eye on it. Um, impairment charges were obviously high last year. 
And in the first half a year ago, we had a charge of about $1.6 billion. The first half this year, we've actually had a credit, about $50 million. So obviously, that has helped financially considerably. Overall, the indicators we have got are looking more positive quarter by quarter. So whilst we're not fully out of the woods yet on this, we are of a view overall that the direction is a good one and that we should hopefully see some moderation continuing in our loan impairment charges as we go through the next few quarters. Yeah. Um, um, what's, the, what's the challenge here on the income line, Andy? Because income was obviously down uh, 5%. Interest rates not helping with this story at the moment. But are you surprised that you're not seeing a bigger pickup in activity given the uh, rebound that we're enjoying? We've really got two things going on and in very different directions. So interest rates reducing significantly over the last year has clearly taken a lot out of what would otherwise have been our published income. However, what we have seen is considerable growth in customer uh, demand and appetite and requests for loans. So our loans to customers are up 6% already six months into the current year. And our trade activity is at the highest levels we've had since 2018. So the underlying is very strong. It's just we're going through a 12-month period when, on an annualised basis, we've got the interest rate effect normalising. Yeah, I mean, the challenge for everybody, I guess, is to make sure that those loans are profitable. Do you think we may be at the bottom here on NIMS? I hope we are at or very, very close to the bottom on NIMS. It's clearly been a very, very big correction that has occurred. And most of the major rates now seem to be settled. So I hope you're right. I hope over a period of time we can maybe see those pick up, not necessarily very near term, but certainly over the next two or three years, we'd expect to see a little bit of pick up there from very historically very, very low rates at the moment. As we look at the bond market recently, the signals uh, that it appears to be sending is that it expects very low growth and persistently low rates going forward, somewhat at odds with the growth numbers and the messages coming from the equity market. How do you square it? I think it depends which part of the world one is looking at. Certain parts of the world are more buoyant at the moment and other parts may be a bit less so. Um, we're fortunate a lot of our activity is in Asia, where overall the growth rates, I think, are the strongest and are, are coming through the whole COVID sort of period. So I think we'll see the rest of the world over a period of time catching up to those levels. But as we all know, the effects of COVID are still quite patchy and they're going to be with us for some period of time coming forwards. Andy, obviously, um, uh, big repayment to uh, shareholders here, announcement on the interim dividend and the share buyback at this stage. Um, what does that mean in terms of the um, programme for increasing dividends and paybacks for the rest of the year? So we've been very clear that to the extent we have excess capital, we will be very happy to return that to shareholders if there are not profitable opportunities to invest that money. We said today that we will do another quarter of a billion dollar buyback. We actually did a quarter of a billion buyback earlier this year, so it's the second time this year. Um, this time last year, we were not paying interim dividends. We have now recommenced the interim dividends. So as the profitability of the business picks up, we will be returning more to shareholders. 
Just on um, Hong Kong and the uh, the state of the economy there at the moment, what's your best read on the resilience of the Hong Kong economy and its um, prospects over the next six to 12 months? I think the evidence is that Hong Kong tends to be more resilient than people give it credit for. If you go back over a number of years and look at a number of big events, people have been from time to time very concerned about the economy. But the facts are it tends to fall through, it tends to rebound. And certainly if you look at our own performance over the last 24 months, we we have performed very strongly. Our income levels are now back to the levels that they were at previous to COVID. And there is a good momentum there. So I think there is a natural heart to the economy there that is robust, it is resilient. And for us, having a strong franchise there is is a huge benefit to the group overall. And just a line on costs, Andy. I think last time we spoke to you, we talked about reductions in the branch network. This time round, costs up 8%. Um, The line is mainly for uh, higher compensation for bankers. Can you tell us a little bit more about cost management at the moment and your intentions? Yeah, the, the, the costs are up, but that is entirely what we had thought would be the case. There's really two reasons. One, last year, the compensation um, accruals were low because profits were low and uh, the overall market clearly depressed. Obviously, this year, we are hoping to return back to more normal levels of return and therefore we'll see a normalisation. And secondly, just the foreign exchange translation um, into US dollars. Those two together explain nearly all of the 8%. So we are very much on track. What we are doing on the cost front is increasingly focusing on investment in new digital technologies, digital businesses, digital platforms, and hence a portion of our investment that is going there is ever increasing. Good to see you, Andy. Thanks so much for walking us through the results this morning. Andy Halford, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Uh, we will be speaking very shortly to the boss of SOCGEN. The group has raised its full year guidance after returning to profit in the second quarter. The French bank now expects growth in all of its businesses. The lender saw net profit recover to 1.4 billion euros from a loss of 1.3 billion a year earlier due to the impact of bad loan provisions. And as I say, we will catch up with Frederic Udea, the CEO of the business at 7.30 CET. Very pleased to have Juliana join us at this hour. How are you? Jeff, good morning. Well, unfortunately, Groundhog Day, but not the good kind. Um, Thanks for hanging in there through my technical issues, but glad that I could join now. We've just got some news crossing the wires in the pharma space. This out of Sanofi, and it's a really interesting deal that's crossing the wires here. Sanofi has announced that they're going to acquire Translate Bio, and this is a company that's involved in mRNA, which we're all now very familiar with, with the two mRNA vaccines that have been front and center in fighting the pandemic. And Sanofi's justification for doing this deal, they want to unlock the power of mRNA in other strategic areas like immunology, oncology, and several others. Uh, mRNA technology uh, is was never before used in vaccine form until the pandemic, and now many investors are thinking about this as proof of concept and thinking about the ways in which mRNA can be used to fight all kinds of diseases, and Sanofi is now jumping on that bandwagon. So a little bit more about this deal. Uh, under the agreement with Translate Bio, this is a uh, 
a clinical stage mRNA therapeutics company. Sanofi will acquire all outstanding shares of the company for $38 per share in cash, which represents a total equity value of $3.2 billion on a fully diluted basis. So a uh, decent sized deal for Sanofi and clearly um, a, a, a sign of their belief in this technology mRNA moving forward. So uh, plenty for di- investors in the pharma space to digest this morning. Now, let's shift away from earnings to some macro data. We got a U.S. factory activity in July fell to its lowest level since the start of the year, according to the Institute for Supply Management. It is also the second straight month of slower growth for the index amid ongoing supply constraints for raw materials. But the ISM sounded an optimistic note, saying that supply and demand appear to be moving closer to equilibrium. Now, FOMC member Christopher Waller has urged the Fed to go early and go fast when it decides to taper, telling CNBC that an announcement could come as early as September. Waller outlined the criteria that would need to be met if the Federal Reserve was to begin slowing its bond purchases in October. Jeff. On the employment side, we were down about we're down about 6.8 million jobs. About 1.8 million is early retirement, so those won't come back. That leaves you with about 5 million. If we get 800,000 to a million uh, jobs in the next two reports, you're down to about 3 million. That means we'll have regained about 85% of all the jobs that we lost by the beginning of September. My base forecast is that inflation will cool off in the latter part of the year and that some of these uh, increases that have occurred because of reopening will cool off and inflation will come back down. That's my base case. Mr. Waller there, uh, just one of the reasons uh, I suspect why we actually came off uh, late, late in the day in the United States. Because you remember, we were here together yesterday morning about this time and we looked at that very strong start we were getting from the Asian markets and the US futures were all very positive and everything looked really good for the first trading session of August. Uh, the sun was rising over London. We didn't have rain in the British summer for a change. Lots of reasons to feel very positive positive. But I did point out to you, if you recall, that Barron's article suggesting that actually August is quite a tricky month and not necessarily one that always delivers pleasant surprises. And the Barron's piece, the dangers uh, at this period of the year, reflecting really um, that issue as to the not only the seasonal fact that more people tend to be out of the market around this time, but also uh, as we look towards the third quarter of the year, there tends to be more of a a reckoning around uh, corporate expectations. But anyway, whether it was that, whether it was the fact that we start to see a lot of uh, emerging market central banks tightening monetary conditions, whether it was the Delta story, we now see this uh, spike in cases in China and they're taking quite significant action. Who knows? But it was a heady cocktail that ultimately took us lower, uh, about 100 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the Nasdaq just about managed to eke out a positive session here. Let's uh, roll the board. Uh, Let's have a look at the uh, uh, S&P index um, on the intraday trade here. And I think this chart actually shows you that um, a lot of the rot started to set in quite early as far as the broader S&P index is concerned. And as you would anticipate, I think the signal then to the Treasury market and the reflexive 
signal back from the Treasury market was one of a search for safety. And interesting here, as we look at the 10-year note, uh, we are back under 1.2 in terms of the yield. Um, a few interesting uh, issues uh, around uh, where we went on the Bund as well. The whole Bund curve in Germany effectively negative now, and we're at about $9 trillion worth of negative yielding government bonds in Europe, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? So what is Asia setting us up for? Let's have a quick look at the uh, Asian markets then uh, and just get a a signal as to where we're going here. And I think, you know, they've picked up the ball from that close in the United States and really struggling to find some positive corporate stories that they want to, uh, that investors want to grab onto and run with. And um, again, I think concerns around the pandemic in Asia may be a very important issue for these markets this morning. But we are red across the board, Juliana. Well, uh, Jeff, we plen- we have plenty to digest of our own here in Europe. In addition to that handover from Asia, it's another busy day for European corporate earnings. Stay tuned for a host of C-suite guests on Squawk Box. Later this morning, we'll speak with BP CEO Bernard Looney, Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares, as well as team viewer chief executive Oliver Steele. We'll also hear from Infineon's head, Raynard Ploss, in an exclusive interview and After this break, Geraldine Machet, co-CEO of DSM, will break down the Dutch Group's first half results. We'll be right back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box. DSM has upgraded its outlook for 2021 after posting stronger than expected results in its materials unit. The Dutch Chemicals and Health Sciences Group now expects to post a full-year adjusted EBITDA growth in the mid-teens, along with a strong net operating free cash flow. DSM posted a 10% jump in group sales for the first half of the year, along with an adjusted net profit of 444 million euros. Geraldine Machet joins us now, co-CEO of DSM. Geraldine, great to speak with you. Looks like you had quite a strong quarter, in particular in your materials business. Break down for us the demand trends you saw over the course of the last three months. Good morning, and and thank you for having us. Indeed, we've had a good start to 2021, a a good half year. And and indeed, if I look at the different moving parts, maybe I'll start with our nutrition business. What we're seeing there is that we have continued good business conditions for our animal nutrition business pretty much across the board. And we've seen continued positive momentum on the human nutrition side on the back of what was already a strong year last year with all the focus on immunity around covid So if I take nutrition overall, um, that basically takes us to an organic growth of 8%, uh, 6%, sorry, on top line, and an 8% increase in EBITDA in our nutrition business. Now, as you correctly pointed out, our materials businesses had pretty exceptional results. Now, this is on the back of, of course, the COVID year last year, 
Uh, but even if I park 2020, what we're seeing is our materials businesses have delivered an 11% volume increase, leading to a 23% increase in EBITDA. And the main drivers behind that are really a combination of end sector demand. So we're very much serving the automotive and the E&E end markets. Uh, but we also saw a lot of restocking uh, along the value chain uh, as the economy is, is picking up. And because of the disruptions in the supply chains, and I'm sure you've heard quite a lot about you know, freight and logistics and, and, and the complexity of actually fulfilling the order book, um, we're seeing you know, a very positive pricing momentum in the market right now. Hence, a, a pretty, uh, pretty high margin on our Q2 numbers in materials. Now, one of the other key questions, in addition to demand, of course, is what's happening on the raw material side of things. So give us some insight, please, about what you've seen in terms of raw material cost inflation so far, and more importantly, where you're expecting raw material prices to go in the second half of the year. Yes, we are seeing raw material prices going up, and that really has to do with this strong order book environment, everyone trying to replenish the supply chains. And the way that uh, we see it is usually it comes with a bit of a delay. So it's about really staying on top of pricing uh, and being able to pass it through, which we have been very successful in doing. We do expect raw materials to continue to trend upwards. And, and that has partly to do with the fact that simply fulfilling the order books these days takes a lot of running. And, and when you go flat out after a while, while you do have to do maintenance stops, it is important you know, to, to regroup. Uh, and that will continue to be uh, driving that, that raw material backdrop. But importantly, of course, it's, it's about being able to translate that into higher pricing. And, and with a margin about above 24%, we've been very successful at doing that. But we do see this continuing in, into the second half of the year. Uh, Geraldine, good morning. I was going to ask you about that, actually. How, how easy have you found it to scale to meet capacity demands currently? Um, always a difficult balancing act to try and make sure supply hits demand. But clearly, there's been a very clear spike in demand uh, through this recovery period. How are you coping Yes, it's exactly been the big equation, right? So last year in the middle of the pandemic, the big question was how far do you cut back um, given the uncertainty of markets? Well, we took the decision not to cut back, particularly when it came to jobs. And as a result, we've been one of the players in our space that have been able to continue to fulfill our customers' needs and not have to call any force measures. Um, that is not the case across the board. And what you're seeing is that that is impacting the whole supply chain, not only of semiconductors, but also some of the critical materials that go into phones and uh, into the whole e and &E space and the automotive space. And that is because everyone is really asking a lot out of their asset base to sort of get the whole chain moving again. It, it is challenging, um, but we have been very successful at this so far. How do you lock in uh, some of the higher margins here? Because it does feel like a sweet spot in ingredients and materials at the moment. But obviously, there's a big cyclicality to this particular sector. How do you reduce some of that and maintain that higher glide path for margin? 
Yeah, so very different dynamics, of course, in nutrition versus materials. And so what we're seeing in our nutrition business is that we are very much in the sort of figures that we are used to operating in with an EBITDA margin around 21%, supported by very healthy growth. Uh, if you recall, there was a little bit of a question mark whether after the strong focus on immunity and health um, that you know came with the at the height of the pandemic would that stay while well, the momentum is staying of course the delta variant um, and the continued concern around staying healthy remains with us so we're seeing very much a, a, a healthy continued strong margin on nutrition business in our materials business there is clearly in q2 a spike for us um, our businesses you know are not 24 25 percent margins more around 21 but that is really has to do with the pricing momentum at a given point in time. Um, this at some point normalizes as it always does when you have these supply chain um, sort of moments of acceleration and, and then it settles down. Uh, Geraldine, just finally, uh, from a strategic perspective, I want to pick up on something, you, you a distinction you just made between the materials business and the nutrition business, materials being significantly more cyclical than nutrition. How should investors think about your materials business moving forward? Clearly, you've been on this path to shift toward being a more high growth specialty business over the last years. Does that mean materials will eventually leave your portfolio? Well, as you saw with our materials results, these are great businesses. Um, they are financially delivering extremely well, and they're also very much in line with our nutrition, health, and sustainability uh, and sustainable living purpose journey. So these are businesses that fit very nicely uh, in the DSM home. Um, we are meaningful players in our space with a strong innovation pipeline. So we're very comfortable with having nutrition and materials uh, in our company. But at present, it is true that this, the, the slightly more cyclical end markets that we serve with materials do stand out versus the, the very resilient nutrition business um, that we have in our nutrition part of the company. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.